A United Airlines flight has issues on its way into Portland, Oregon, so they decide to go into a holding pattern. What caused this flight to go from seemingly normal to needing to crash in a wooded area? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. And I'm no longer dying. Yeah. We're also panicking, so it's fine. Everything's fine. It's just, you know, like the the little cartoon of like the rooms on fire Uh and the the dogs just sitting there going, this is Everything's fine. It's not fine. It's not fine. But we're going to make it fine. We're drinking Baja Blasts that may or may not contain tequila and everything's going to be okay. Oh man, guys, it's been, we're behind three episodes right now. The holidays, (laughs) yay! (laughs) And and next week's episode, or what you're going to hear next week, is actually three flights. And it's quite different. So we're, we're each doing one and then coming together. But yeah. that's next week. Yes. Come together. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right now. Okay. We don't own that song. Please don't copyright strike us. Thank no. you. Actually, the copyrights over their songs are very touchy subject. Anyway. So we got a new patron. I don't remember their name. But uh, we yes. got a new patron. From oh. C- C- Canadian land. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're Canadian. From Canada, eh? From Canada, eh? Thank you to our new patron, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. Another Chris? Another Chris. Chris number <laughs> 562. Thank you. We don't have that many patrons. I wish we had that many patrons. No, we don't have that many patrons. But we do have a handful of Chris's now. We do. So if you want to send in stories, we're still accepting stories. We realized we haven't done an episode. <laughs> we are a hot Wait. minute behind on those. Ones. Please be patient. They're ready. They're ready to be recorded. It's, we don't have time to record them, no. guys. We have no time. We're lucky we can even get the main episodes done right now. <laughs> See, normally this time last year, I had an actual like winter break that was like a week and some odd long. That's not happening anymore. In this fact, is, it's quite the opposite. This is quite the opposite of that. And I knew that this time last year when I had already applied for and gotten my new job. I was like, oh, next year's going to be very different. <laughs> sure enough. Total polar opposite situation now. Yeah. Ta-da. So we realized you haven't heard a listener episode in a while. They, they we know. Please be patient. When the new year's here and we have a little bit more time and we can do some more recording, we'll go yes. ahead and record those. But it will happen eventually. Until that happens, please be patient. Yes. Because we do realize there's several of you that are like, I sent in stories. Like, where are they? Yes, I promise they're coming. They're coming. Promise. We will do them. I promise. promise. With that in mind, also, we had some people check out the merch page and get some merch. Yeah. You should do that because yeah, there's a that's lot of a thing. Cool stuff on there. We still have that. And then also make sure you check out Patreon because we've had some people who are like, I want to I wanna see what else you have. There's lots. There's so oh much. Oh my God, there's so much. There's so much stuff. You wonder why we can't keep up with doing things like listener episodes when we also have so much extra stuff. <laughs> On Patreon to <laughs> do. So, there is so much stuff. Yeah. So if you're so willing, go ahead and check all that stuff out. You can see all the episodes on Patreon. You can't listen to them unless you're a patron. But you can see all the stuff that's included with each tier on the Patreon. If you look us up on Patreon, we pull up. There's also a link on our website to it. We are... Feel free to check it out. We do so much extra stuff. And when I say so much, I mean there's more extra stuff than there is regular episodes. So... It's also that time of year again, friends. Where we have to thank all our country. This is, we are thanking all of you listeners. 
from around the world. Thanking every country that listens to us. In order from highest concentration of listeners to lowest concentration. First off, we have the United States. United Kingdom. Australia. Canada. Germany. Sweden. Norway. Singapore. Brazil. Poland. New Zealand. Ireland. Austria. United Arab Emirates. France. The Netherlands. Finland. Switzerland. Latvia. India. South Africa. Iceland. Trinidad and Tobago. Japan. Denmark. Belgium. Hong Kong. Spain. Italy. Mexico. Bahrain. Puerto Rico. Greenland. Colombia. Jersey. Taiwan. French Polynesia. Barbados. Pakistan. Costa Rica. Portugal. Ivory Coast. The Bahamas. Russia. South Korea. Saudi Arabia. Thailand. Czech Republic. Malaysia. Nigeria. Philippines. Turkey. Ukraine. Greece. Indonesia. China. Estonia. Israel. Cayman Islands. Romania. Slovakia. Ecuador. Bulgaria. The Dominican Republic. Syria. Gibraltar. Croatia. Algeria. Chile. Vietnam. Slovenia. Kenya. Egypt. Nepal. Qatar. Morocco. Djibouti. Argentina. Ethiopia. Kuwait. Antigua and Barbuda. Bangladesh. Lithuania. Jamaica. Hungary. Tunisia. Cyprus. Cameroon. Isle of Man. Maldives. Cambodia. Macau. Korea. Guyana. Botswana. Eswatini. Peru. Sri Lanka. Panama. Luxembourg. Reunion. Guam. Curaçao. Oman. Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. Togo. Dominica. Guinea. Macedonia. Nicaragua. St. Martin. Tajikistan. The U.S. Minor Outlying Islands. Malta. Serbia. And the Republic of Moldova. Some of those, man. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, definitely some new ones on there. I didn't yes. know we had Reunion Island. And also, curiously, not at the bottom of that list is Korea. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, Which you is... said Korea and South Korea, so you can make your own determination on that. I feel like there's about one person that can listen to that, and that is mildly concerning. <laughs> Someone probably, like, bounced their VPN off of there. Ah, uh, probably. Probably actually what happened. But yeah. thank you to everyone, and happy holidays. Yeah. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Merry Kwanzaa, whatever other holiday you celebrate this time of year that we don't know about. Happy Yule, Happy Winter Solstice, which is in three days from recording. I got to say Argentina. Congratulations, Argentina. That too. Yes. They sure won the World Cup. Celebrating like crazy. That is already now weeks past, but we just we're recording this like two days the day after. after. That <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know. <laughs> Woo! Good for you. Okay. okay. With all of that, what are we covering today, Nick? Today. We are covering United Airlines Flight 173. Thanks to... Thank you to Al, Nick's dad, mm-hmm. Kate, and Helen uh-huh. for recommending this episode. It's not surprising to me that this one came up with multiple recommendations. Also, it's not at all surprising to me that my dad's name is on there for a reason. But you will find out. We will get there in a little while. He did want to join us for uh, this episode, but logistics. He may give us a few special things related to this episode later on, but for the time being... He says hi. He says hello. Life is busy, and it just wasn't a possibility today. And that's okay. So this one, yeah, is a relatively well-known one. It's one of the first episodes of Air Disasters that I think I ever watched. So I knew about this one a very long time ago, and I am surprised it took us this long for it to come around onto the recommendations. But then again, it's also very related to a lot of other incidents we've talked about. So we won't. I only bring up three. That's all. So it's not going to be. There's a lot. I'm sure. Yeah, it's not going to be a new concept. But let's dive right on into this one. This accident occurred on December 28th of 1978. This was a Douglas DC-861. 
with the tail number November 8082 uniform. So the DC-861 was, again, one of the longer versions of the DC-8, much like we talked about the Canadian Pacific. It's also one of the older versions with the older engines, cigar engines. Had decent capacity, long range. It's a good airplane. Four engines. This is a flight from JFK in New York to Denver. Stapleton. To the Stapleton Airport. To Portland. PDX. Now you might see where Al is pertinent. Yep. The captain of this flight was Mulburn, or Buddy, McBroom. He was 52 years old at the time. He had 27,638 hours total. Keep that in mind. Of which, (laughs) 5,517 are on the DC-8. Whenever you say that, it's like, oh, man. (laughs) That is an enormous number. It's a huge number, but that also means that there's a bunch of issues that could culminate because of said number. I'm also just going to reiterate the date of this crash which was in late 1978. Yep. Those are uh, foreshadowing. Yes. The first officer for this flight was Roderick or Rod Beeb, B-E-E-B-E. He was 45 years old at the time. He had 5,209 hours total, of which 247 were on the DC-8. Oh, not very many. Nope. He still had a decent amount of experience overall, though. The flight engineer was Forrest or Frosty. Sorry, what? Mendenhall. Oh, that's an unfortunate name. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. You poor man. I know. He was 41 years old at the time. He had 3,895 hours total, of which 2,263 were on the DC-8. So relatively experienced on the DC-8 and overall. The flight departed Denver. That's the leg we're talking about in case you needed to know. We're not talking about the JFK leg. That was all fine. The flight departed Denver at 3.47 p.m. local time with 181 passengers and eight crew. The planned en route time was 2 hours and 26 minutes on an IFR or Instrument Flight Rules flight plan. The planned arrival time for the flight was 5.17 p.m. local time in Portland. The climb, cruise, and initial descent were all normal. 5.05 p.m. and 47 seconds, the flight crew called Portland Approach and informed them that they were flying at 10,000 feet and their speed was reducing. The approach controller responded, telling the flight to maintain their heading for a visual approach to runway 28 left. The flight crew acknowledged and stated, quote, we have the field in sight, end quote. All seems to be well. Though it was dark at Portland, the weather was clear at the time, so they were going to do a visual approach. They didn't need any instrument approach to do this. 5.07 p.m. and 55 seconds. The approach controller instructed the flight to descend and maintain 8,000 feet. The flight crew acknowledged and began descending. 5.09 p.m. and 40 seconds, the flight was cleared for further descent down to 6,000 feet, and the flight crew acknowledged. At the time, the first officer was the pilot flying, and the captain was the pilot monitoring. As the flight descended through 8,000 feet, the first officer called for flaps 15, followed immediately by the landing gear. The captain extended the flaps, then moved the landing gear lever to the down position to extend the landing gear. A moment later, there was a sizable thud felt through the airplane, And the first officer noted a small yaw to the right at the same time. 5.12 p.m. and 20 seconds, the approach controller instructed the flight to contact the tower. The flight crew responded, quote, Negative, we'll stay with you. We'll stay at 5, so 5,000 feet. We'll maintain about 170 knots. We got a gear problem. We'll let you know, Mm -hmm. end quote. The approach controller responded eight seconds later, quote, United 173 Heavy Roger, maintain 5,000, turn left, heading 200, and the flight crew acknowledged this. 
5.14 p.m. and 43 seconds, the approach controller further instructed the flight to turn left to 100 degrees and informed them that they would just orbit there until their issue was sorted and the flight crew acknowledged. For the next 23 minutes, the approach controller continued to vector the flight in a pattern while the flight crew discussed and performed all of the emergency and precautionary actions available to ensure that the landing gear was down, including the flight engineer checking the manual landing gear extension rods on the wings. We'll talk more about that later on. Not super important, but kind of. 5.38 p.m., the flight crew contacted United Airlines Line Maintenance Control Center at San Francisco and explained the scenario via radio. 5.44 p.m. in three seconds, the United Airlines San Francisco Line Maintenance Radio asked, quote, United 173, you estimate that you'll make a landing about five minutes past the hour. Is that okay? End quote. The captain replied, quote, yeah, that's good ballpark. I'm not going to hurry the girls. We got about 175 people on board and we want to take our time and get everybody ready and then we'll go. It's clear as a bell and no problem. End quote. So they're having issues with making sure their gear is down. Mm-hmm. Correct. So they're just trying to fly around to make sure that it's down or. Mm-hmm. Yes. So did they fly by the tower to see if the tower could see if it was down? No. We'll talk a little so, bit about this, but they did. that's not even necessary because of the way that this airplane is designed. We'll talk a bit about that later on. Okay. They were basically going through, at this point, all of the precautionary everything, and now they were just preparing for an emergency landing because the landing gear may be down. But it may not be locked. Right. Yep. So, and therefore, it could collapse. Right. So now they're preparing for a possible emergency landing. When he says in here, he says, we want to take our time and get everybody ready and then we'll go. And he says, I'm not going to hurry the girls. He's talking about the flight attendants, the cabin crew. Okay. He doesn't want to hurry them along Which is too kind much. of diminutive, but. Yeah. He doesn't want to hurry them 1978. along. 1978. Yes. Doesn't want to hurry them along and he wants to make sure there's enough time to prepare the cabin for an emergency landing. I get it, but still. Yes. It's. Okay, I because I know kind of what happens, it, you're it's already get, bothering me. You're going to get really mad. But <laughs> I'll just let you continue because I don't want to ruin it. But. I hide nothing, so you it's will... It's kind of hard to hide. You will yeah. know <laughs> turns out. everything by the end here. Um, I of, just am wondering why, like, if they're so worried about having the gear be down, why they would take so long to make sure... In when, this, in fact, they're just doing an emergency landing anyway. This is a discussion I'll have maybe more in the second half, but there's a lot of psychology into what's happening. Okay. All the while, the flight continued to make a triangular pattern at the direction of the approach controller at 5,000 feet within an area of up to 20 nautical miles away from the airport. So they're making this triangle approach, and they keep getting like close to the airport and further away, and then making a triangle, like literally just making a triangle. From 5.44 p.m. and 30 seconds to 5.45 p.m. and 23 seconds, so just a little under a minute, the captain and the lead cabin attendant were discussing preparations for an emergency landing, crash landing, and evacuation procedures, all as a precaution just in the event something goes wrong. Okay. 5.46 p.m. and 52 seconds, the first officer asked the flight engineer, quote, how much fuel we got, end quote, to which the flight engineer replied, 5,000, quote, unquote, and the first officer acknowledged, 5,000 pounds, that is. 5.48 p.m. and 38 seconds, the approach controller advised the flight that there was another aircraft in their vicinity, to which the first officer replied that they had the traffic in sight. So, no factor, really. 5.48 p.m. and 54 seconds, the first officer asked the captain, quote, what's the fuel show now? End quote. To which the captain replied, five. And the first officer acknowledged. So, again, 5,000 pounds. 5.49 p.m., the flight engineer noted that there was an issue with the fuel pumps. The captain replied, quote, that's about right. The feed pumps are starting to blink. End quote. 
what he is talking about here, what he's talking about here is on the flight engineer panel, he's getting these little lights blinking regarding the fuel pumps. Okay. Per the manual of the aircraft, and the captain actually knew this, when they get below 5,000 pounds total, the fuel pump lights will start to blink, indicating that they are getting to a low point because the fuel right. pump can only work, work with certain... so much fuel. So, yes. It's he's... like the fuel pump in your car. If you run your car ridiculously low, your fuel pump will go out because there's nothing to pump. Right. So that's the gist of this. They're getting an indication. He's like, yep, makes sense because we're at... And that would be about right. Immediately after this, till about 5.49 p.m. and 45 seconds, the flight crew discussed the landing gear issue further, but they were interrupted by the approach controller with a heading change and another traffic advisory. 5.50 p.m. and 20 seconds, the captain asked the flight engineer to, quote, give us a current card on weight, figure about another 15 minutes, end quote, to which the first officer responded, 15 minutes, quote unquote. The captain replied, quote, yeah, give us three or four thousand pounds on top of zero fuel weight, end quote. All of that is a very interesting little conversation they just had. The captain just instructed the flight engineer to fill out a weight card, so... The weight and balance cards they have, he literally has a little pad in front of him and it has just these like peel off cards usually. And it's how they can calculate the weight for landing. So he wants to know what the weight of the airplane is going to be about at landing just so they have a good idea how to handle the airplane. All it gives them the calculations on what to do with flaps, what speed to land at, all those kinds of things. And what he just said, so the, the first officer just questioned him, 15 minutes to land? Really? Question mark? Question mark. And the captain said, yeah. And he asked that the flight engineer add three or four thousand pounds to an empty fuel weight so we have the weight of the passengers and everything we know what the airplane weighs empty he wants three to four thousand pounds on top of that assuming he's gonna have three to four thousand pounds of fuel the flight engineer jumped in and said quote not enough 15 minutes is gonna really run us low on fuel here end quote yeah you're you're furrowing at me that is accurate <laughs> you you're you're concerned I don't like this captain right now. Just you wait. Sorry, okay. <laughs> okay. 5.50 p.m. and 47 seconds, the flight engineer stated, quote, okay, take 3,000 pounds, 204, end quote. He's talking about there is he assumed 3,000 pounds of fuel. The landing weight's going to be 204,000 pounds, which is okay for this airplane. The aircraft was 18 nautical miles from Portland to the south at the time, and a turn to the northeast which doesn't put them in the direction of the airport. It's, imagine the airport's at the top of this triangle. They're flying diagonally southwest away from the airport, and then they fly a straight line basically across from west to east, and then they would fly this northeast weird thing. Not really quite directly at the airport. They would fly kind of away. Anyways, it's this whole long thing. They do this weird triangle pattern at the direction of the controller, so they keep changing headings, and each time it's a little different. How many times have they done this now? Good question. To be honest, I don't know how many patterns they did. But a few. Uh-huh. <clears throat> yep, that's correct. Uh-huh. Okay. We're not done yet. <laughs> we are not done yet. 5.51 p.m. and 35 seconds, the captain instructed the flight engineer to contact the United Airlines representative at Portland to inform him of the situation and to tell him that the flight would be landing with about 4,000 pounds of fuel. Hold on. <laughs> <sighs> That doesn't even make sense. That doesn't make sense. The captain assumes some things. Does he even know how to do math? 
Does he even realize that they were just at 5,000? Mm-hmm. Had a conversation with the person whose job it is to make sure they have enough fuel to make it back to the airport. And he thinks that they're going to have 4,000 pounds of fuel when they land? Yes. No. I am, I am fascinated that you have this thought process. I am fascinated with this as well. I'm just like, that's and, not how math works. And the fun part of that and is... And physics and like, no. <laughs> well, and the fun part of that is, is that we are not the only ones having this fun thought process. There the are some having pepper. some the thought process happening are also there. like, the f- are you talking about? The fun engineer. Yeah. The engineer's like, the hell did you get that number from? Right. <laughs> well. You know, it's great when Miranda's already on a tirade and we're only 25 minutes into the episode. Listen, Linda, it doesn't make sense. Remember hey. when I said... That it does get worse. <laughs> that it, we're not done yet. <laughs> Just you wait. From 5.52 p.m. and 17 seconds to 5.53 p.m. and 30 seconds, the flight engineer talked to the representative at Portland. The representative then inquired if the flight was planning to land about five minutes after the hour, which the flight engineer asked the captain, and the captain responded yes, quote-unquote, and the flight engineer relayed this to the representative. So they're still planning to land at five minutes past the hour. So yeah. five minutes after six o'clock. Great. Which you might note is 12 minutes away at this time. And they're how far from the airport? The flight was about 17 nautical miles from the airport at the time. That was my next line. Ha To the south, traveling northeast at the time. 5.55 p.m. in four seconds, the flight engineer reported, quote, approach descent check is complete, end quote. So they've done one of their checklists. 5.56 p.m. in 53 seconds, the first officer asked, quote, how much fuel you got now, end quote. And the flight engineer informed them that there was about 1,000 pounds in each tank. For each engine. Yeah. So the whole 4,000 pounds BS. Right. There's your 4,000 pounds. They have four engines. There's four tanks. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. There's more than four tanks. But there's roughly four tanks, one for each engine. And each one of them is supposed to have about 1,000 pounds in it. But they're not even back at the airport yet. Right. 5.57 p.m. and 21 seconds. The captain sent the flight engineer to the passenger cabin to, quote, kind of see how things are going, end quote. While the flight engineer was out of the cockpit, the captain and the first officer discussed ensuring the cabin crew had enough time to prepare the cabin for landing, as well as how the aircraft might handle upon an emergency landing should they have landing gear issues. 6.01 p.m. and 12 seconds, the approach controller instructed the flight to turn left to a heading of 195 degrees, and the first officer acknowledged. 6.01 p.m. and 34 seconds, the flight engineer returned to the cockpit and reported that the cabin would need about another two to three minutes to prepare, and then they'd be ready. The aircraft was five nautical miles southeast of the airport at the time, turning to the southwest, so now away from the airport. 6.02 p.m. and 44 seconds, the approach controller inquired about the status of the flight, and the first officer replied, quote, Yeah, we have indication our gear is abnormal. It'll be our intention in about five minutes to land on 28 left. We would like the equipment standing by. Our indications are the gear is down and locked, We've got our people prepared for an evacuation in the event that should become necessary. End quote. Can I bring this up now? Because this is really bothering me. Please. Is they're trying to make sure the cabin has enough time, mm-hmm. but they've been circling around in the air for the past 20 minutes. What have they been doing back there? It's a little it's more, than, more than, that. than 20 minutes. And you're correct. And even longer than that, right? Mm-hmm. Why do they need so much time to make sure they have enough time back there they they had more than enough time by now to have everyone prepared for an emergency period there's yep. been more than enough time and in all reality you don't usually get to like prepare for an emergency landing right so like the fact that you're giving them time is great but what you should be said. giving them like what 
30, 45, like there's no reason to give them that amount of time. I'm glad your frustration at this point is just as bad as mine was when I was reading all of this because I was like, oh my God, shut up and land. <laughs> I was like, you could have landed 30 minutes ago. I was like, literally nobody cares. Land the airplane, they'll be ready. Like if they need to <laughs> evacuate, they need to evacuate and they can do that. But why are you saying that you're doing this to give them time? Right. And like, why are they coming back like, oh, they need like five to 10 more minutes? No, they don't. No. They've had so long to prepare for this potential emergency landing. Right. Not even saying that it will be an emergency landing. By the way, in the event of emergency landing these days, they have to have the cabin ready in about two to three minutes. Because so, that's usually the amount of time you got. <laughs> it is. If that. Not long. So what were they doing up to this point? Anyways. All of that said, 6.03 p.m. and 14 seconds, the approach controller asked them when the approach would begin. So when do you intend to start your <laughs> when visual? When do you intend? to actually come back to the airport. Right. When would you like to actually start this visual <laughs> approach you claim you're going to be landing in five minutes? The captain responded, quote, they've about finished in the cabin, I'd guess about another three, four, five minutes, end quote. Oh my God. So we said we'd be landing five minutes from now, five minutes ago. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be about five more minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when someone's getting ready and they're like, I need five more minutes. And it's like half an hour later. And it's like, well, five I, more couldn't, minutes. I couldn't pick the right whatever. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, like me doing my notes. I need five more minutes. Just five, <laughs> five more, more minutes. minutes. <laughs> it's true, though. I know. At the time, the flight was eight nautical miles from the airport on a southwesterly heading away from the airport. <laughs> But we're going away from the airport. Uh-huh. Well, yep. We'll be there. Yep. How? I don't know. Exactly. 6.03 p.m. and 23 seconds. The approach controller inquired about fuel and souls on board. He just wanted to know roughly what they're going to be dealing with since they're doing an emergency landing. The captain, Funny you ask. <laughs> the captain replied, quote, about 4,000. Well, make it 3,000 pounds of fuel. You can add to that 172 plus six lap infants, which also, by the way, is not a correct count of souls on board. <sighs> Because... Who's surprised? Yeah. Not me. That doesn't count the crew. So, you know. Details. Details, details. The crew then discussed the landing gear warning horn for about two and a half minutes. They couldn't have done that for the past, what, 45 minutes? We'll get into that later. (laughs) You've had a ridiculous amount of time to discuss the warning horn while you've been circling in the air doing nothing? We'll get into that later. 6.06 6.06 p.m. in 19 seconds. A cabin attendant entered the cockpit and the captain asked, quote, how you doing? End quote. <laughs> she responded, quote, well, I think we're ready. End quote. Nah, really? <laughs> you had so much time. What have you been doing back there? I'm sorry. You say you're ready. All right. <laughs> yeah, now we could just go, let me just land the airplane now. Well, guess what? There are 17 nautical miles from the airport now. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> I wish it was actually funny. It's not. It's not. It's not. I Because I know what happens, too. And mm-hmm. the amount of time it's taking is, like, painstaking. Like, why are you taking so goddamn long? I still can't even see the bottom of my notes yet. So this is... <laughs> you, you think you're frustrated now? <laughs> okay. That was the sound of Miranda's soul leaving her body. <laughs> yes. 6.06 p.m. and 40 seconds, the captain replied, quote, Okay, we're going to go in now. We should be landing in about five minutes. <laughs> End quote. Five minutes! It's the magic number. Do you, did you, do you, do, okay. Does he as, know how time works? As a note here, you might note what time I just said it was. 
in what time two separate people on the ground asked him they would be landing and when they said that would be. It is currently 6.06 p.m. So they should be on the ground by now. They were supposed to be on the ground. They claimed five after. Yeah. Guess what? Guess what? They're not. <laughs> Guess what? They're still flying. Nervous laughter. Freaking burning up precious fuel. <sighs> well, simultaneous to that decision that they were finally going to land from the captain, the first officer stated, quote, I think you just lost number four, end quote. <laughs> well. The first officer then advised the flight engineer to open the crossfeeds. That is in regards to the engines and the fuel. Crossfeed is what feeds fuel from one tank into the other. We've talked about this before. There are crossfeeds for all of these fuel tanks, and there's a very complex system on the DC-8 to get fuel from one tank to another, to another, to a different one. And there's this whole thing, and it's all designated to the flight engineer's position to take care of because it is complex on the DC-8. But guess what? Guess what? You can't crossfeed fuel. When there is none. I was just going to say that. I would be like, where are you going to get the fuel from? If one engine is now out of fuel, all the others had the same amount of fuel in them. So so where's the magical fuel you're talking about to crossfeed? You might be onto something, but we're not there yet. <laughs> Amazingly, we're not there yet. 6.06 p.m. and 46 seconds. The first officer told the captain, quote, we're going to lose an engine. Not just one? The captain asked why. <laughs> The first officer then stated again, we're losing an engine. And the captain asked, why? why? <laughs> and the first officer stated simply, fuel. You know, much to the captain's they amazement. They still have 4,000 pounds. What are you talking about? Right. Much to his amazement. They, it was f five minutes. They were saying five minutes. That was 15 minutes ago. 4,000 <laughs> pounds of fuel. They're, they're that's what they're landing with. Right. That was 15 because, minutes ago. Yeah. Because physics and also like the engines have been running. and But that doesn't matter. Nope. The magical fuel just stays in the tank until right. we need it. Right. So because of this, the flight crew then discussed back and forth a confusing conversation about the state of the fuel of the airplane. How is it confusing? You have been flying around for almost an hour. Well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Actually, you're more than right. 6.07 p.m. in six seconds, the first officer stated, quote, it's flamed out, end quote. Yeah. The engine's out. It's, it's gone. 6.07 p.m. in 12 seconds. The captain called the approach controller and asked, quote, would like clearance for an approach into 2.8 left now, end quote. You're not going to make it. <laughs> You're not going to make it. There's the, no fuel. I love how the capacity to scream and be mad is just gone from that statement since <laughs> that one is just so infuriating. Oh, we're going we're to make the landing now. Guess how far away they were. <laughs> Farther than this. 19 nautical miles away. Oh, my God. When they last checked in. Right. <laughs> the approach controller immediately gave the flight vectors to a visual approach to runway 28 left. The flight turned to the vectored heading of 010 degrees. So pretty much straight north toward the airport, kind of. Now, I am going to read directly from the report because this was just far too much and unnecessary to copy down when it is written out. They have a portion of the transcript, which I am not hiding anything, obviously, since I've been quoting things. They have a transcript. <laughs> so... From 6.07 p.m. and 27 seconds to 6.09 p.m. and 16 seconds, so almost two whole minutes, the following intracockpit conversation took place. Flight engineer, we're going to lose number three in a minute two. End quote. Flight engineer, it's showing zero. Captain, you got a thousand pounds. You got to... Flight engineer, 5,000 in there, but we lost it. <laughs> Captain, all right. <laughs> Flight engineer, are you getting it back? First officer... No number four. You got that crossfeed open? 
flight engineer. No, I haven't got it open. Which one? So they didn't even open the crossfeed for the number four engine yet. You can't crossfeed in a zero fuel. You're right. Captain, open them both. Get some fuel in there. Got some fuel pressure? Flight engineer. Yes, sir. Captain, rotation. Now she's coming. Captain, okay, watch one and two. We're showing down to zero or a thousand. Flight engineer. Yeah. Captain, on number one? Flight engineer. Right. All this is happening over two minutes, mind you, so there's lots of gaps in this this conversation. First officer. Still not getting it. Captain. We'll open all four crossfeeds. Flight engineer. All four? Captain. Yeah. First officer. All right, now it's coming. First officer. It's going to be on approach, though. An unknown voice. Yeah. Captain. You gotta keep them running. Flight engineer. Yes, sir. First officer. Get this on the ground. Flight engineer. Yeah, it's showing not very much more fuel. Flight engineer. We're down to one on the totalizer. Number two is empty. All of that conversation happens over two minutes where they're really going back and forth. And it's this really weird psychological thing that's happening right now where they're just like, just keep going just a little further, just a little more. Like this whole conversation is just what can we do to just extend the fuel a little more when there is none? I, I, I'm just flabbergasted by the amount of stupidity. That they're like, let's just keep opening the cross feeds. That'll fix the problem. But all of the tanks are now empty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what engine is now running? And it's about to flame out because there's no fuel. Right. Left. There's none. They don't have any fuel left. Right. And this captain was just like, well, we had 5,000 pounds. <laughs> yeah, 20 minutes ago. Right. Which you decided to freaking, I don't know, do whatever. Right. And just fly around and burn all the fuel. So I don't know where you thought the fuel would go. <laughs> I don't know. And I'm not really entirely sure what he thought was coming next when uh, he said what comes next. 6.09 p.m. and 21 seconds. The captain advised the approach controller, quote, United 7-3 is going to turn toward the airport and come in, quote. Uh, the approach controller confirmed with the flight's intentions and then cleared the flight for the visual approach to runway 28 left. So they had been vectoring, but they still weren't cleared for the approach technically. So now he's cleared them for the approach because he just stated basically we are going to come straight in. <laughs> realizing the gravity of his situation a little bit, maybe he was like, maybe we need to just get there as fast as possible. That would have been good 15 minutes ago. Maybe more than that. Maybe even 30 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. 6, 10 p.m. and 17 seconds. The captain requested that the flight engineer, quote, reset that circuit breaker momentarily. See if we get gear lights, end quote. And the flight engineer complied. I'm sorry. Why are we still focused on this? This poor flight engineer, like, he's just doing his job. Like, he's just, I, if you remember what happens at this point, it's 1978. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> we'll so. get to that, I'm sure, later. <clears throat> I'll wait. But uh -huh. this poor flight engineer is like, this f guy's an idiot. What the f is he doing? <laughs> like, he's just like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. But you know, in his head, he's like, this f guy, how did he become a captain where did this what the hell right <laughs> why just get the airplane on the ground right jesus christ 30 seconds later the captain called the approach controller and asked how far they were from the airport to which the controller responded quote i'd call it 18 flying miles end quote this you're is, done you're this, done this is the approach controller was actually doing something pretty smart here they were more than 18 miles in flying distance probably but they were under 18 miles straight line, which if he had answered that, then the captain probably would have had this confidence in him that they would make it. But he figured 18 miles by way of making basically an L approach. So they're coming from the south. They need to make a left turn to go west for an approach. 
Oh, Jesus. So 18 flying miles. That's the amount of distance he thinks they're going to have to fly. 6.12 p.m. and 42 seconds, so almost two whole minutes later, the captain requested distance again, and the controller responded, 12 flying miles. Obviously, we're not getting ground very quickly. The flight was then cleared to contact the tower controller. 6.13 p.m. and 21 seconds, the flight engineer stated, quote, We've lost two engine guys. Two seconds later, he reiterated, quote, We just lost two engines, one and two, end quote. So now they're down to one single engine running. Oh, boy. 6.13 p.m. and 38 seconds, the captain stated, quote, they're all going. We can't make Troutdale. To which the first officer stated, quote, which we by, can't make anything. Which, by the way, is where Al keeps his plane. It is. It's where he keeps his little 182. And Troutdale also comes up in another incident which we might talk about someday. United, Portland, and Denver. DC-8s. And DC-8s have really bad histories together. It's just this weird combination of doesn't work for some reason. Good news is, DC-8s don't fly much anymore. Right. So, anyways. Especially for United. Yep. Especially to PDX from Denver. Right. So Troutdale is pretty close to PDX, and they were closer to Troutdale than they were PDX, and the first officer, well, the captain stated they're not going to make Troutdale if they wanted to, and the first officer saying, we can't make anything. There's nothing. Find a field. Right. Find a field. Hey, do you see that dark spot on the ground? Let's land there. Getting there. 6.13 p.m. and 46 seconds, the captain told the first officer, quote, okay, declare a mayday, end quote. Four seconds later, the first officer did so, stating, quote, Portland Tower, United 173, heavy, mayday. The engines are flaming out. We're going down. We're not going to be able to make the airport, end quote. Which, this, just hearing that. Yeah, it's horrifying. This was the last radio transmission by the flight. And by this point, they had lost all four engines. All four had gone out. But the gist of what happened next was... They started looking for a place to land this airplane, and they are flying over Portland, over the suburbs, and there's not much. The captain finally saw what he thought was a wonderful thing, which was a dark spot in a sea of lights, so he figured that was an open field, which, okay. Turns out there's not a lot of open field in Gresham. Right. And because of where they are, which is Portland, you might know that there's a lot of trees there, which do tend to cover up a lot of the light that comes from the city. That's what they were actually looking at, but it doesn't all go so badly. 6.15 p.m., the aircraft crashed into a wooded area in the middle of a Portland suburb of Gresham, just six nautical miles east-southeast of the airport. Not terribly far from the airport. There was no fire upon impact, and nobody was injured on the ground. Which Turns is... out there's no fire. Yeah, well, there's emergence. no fuel, so how would there be a fire? Right, what do you know? The wreckage path was 1,554 feet long and about 130 feet wide. Two unoccupied homes were destroyed by the airplane, which, I mean, it is really... At least no one was home. Right. And at least it was only two homes. That's why you have house insurance. Which, if you look up the Wikipedia page, it gives you the coordinates. Right. It is a very different area now, actually. There's a lot more than just two homes. Oh, yeah, there are. Some telephone poles and electrical lines were also severed. Both wings had separated from the aircraft as it dragged through the trees. The front section of the fuselage, from about row 5 forward, was heavily damaged, but much of the fuselage actually remained intact. In all, two crew and eight passengers perished in the accident. Two crew and 21 passengers were seriously injured, and four crew and 152 passengers had minor or no injuries at all. Which is crazy. Yep. Well, they were preparing for an emergency landing. Right. I know, but there's only so much you can prepare against, I don't know, trees and foliage. Right. Foliage. I know. I know it's correct. (laughs) The captain was the only surviving member of the flight crew. 
That's unfortunate. No, the first officer survived. I didn't think so, because they only had statements from one person. The first officer survived, the flight engineer and the main cabin flight attendant, otherwise known as the purser, are the two that died. Okay, well, they only had statements from the captain. It's the only person they seem to ever actually be able to talk to in the cockpit. Hmm. That makes sense, given that the worst of the damage was to the right side of the front of the plane. Yes, correct. So the first officer probably wasn't in great shape. Nope. I would say not. Not statement worthy. Which they ran into a tree. That's what like just sheared that side of the plane. But what I was going to say, what's really unfortunate is when someone else's stupidity ends up injuring you and costing people's lives. Because if they had just done the one triangle, figured out what the hell was going on and landed, they would have been fine. You're correct. Yep. It is just, it's They were just taking way too long and doing so at the captain's insistence. And you're correct. They ended up having total fuel exhaustion. So all of this is there's a couple of things. This is a tragedy, but this is also pretty incredible. They crashed in a major suburb in a major city with a sizable airplane with a lot of people on board. And only 10 died. And only 10 people perished, which is pretty But nobody needed to perish. You're correct. That's the problem. You're correct. It's great that, that not is, everybody died. Like, which is actually awesome, why... No one needed to die. Which is actually why this accident got more attention than some of the ones that preceded it in similar circumstances. Because this one was particularly, potentially so much worse, and still ended up not that bad, but could have been avoided entirely, it made this situation just way worse. Yep. For those of you wondering why Al recommended this, if it hasn't already been clear enough, he lives in Gresham. Which is a very large suburb of Portland, by the way. So I'm not triangulating him by any means. No, it is a very large place. My subsequent sentence may a little bit. He lives within five miles of the crash site. Right. So... He said that he's going to go take pictures. Yeah. It won't reveal anything. I mean, that was... Right. A lot of years ago. Almost 50 years ago? Yeah. It's a long time ago. (laughs) So, we're actually going to take the break here, because it's been running a minute, and we'll come back with my part. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Okay. We back? We back. So tell us about the stupid, Christy. Honestly, at this point, do you even need an analysis? We know what happened. Allow me. I want to understand, though, why the hell the captain thought they had so much fuel when they didn't have it. I have like half an explanation that's not really an explanation. Um, We'll discuss it a bit, though. I will also reveal what caused this entire sequence of events. So this investigation was performed by the NTSB. Yeah. And both black boxes were recovered from the wreckage, though the FDR stopped recording 44 seconds before impact. Can you guess why? The engines weren't working, so there was no electricity. Hey, what do you know? <laughs> wow. Because the electricity that goes to the recorders is run by the engines. Yeah. <laughs> turns out. I don't know if the CVR continued working or if they just didn't mention that it stopped working. It probably stopped working. 
So there's that. Given how many survivors there were, investigators immediately launched a full-fledged effort to interview anyone who could be interviewed, which was mostly passengers. At this point, the captain was in the hospital and could not be interviewed. I'm assuming the first officer continues to be in that state. Passengers reported a jolt in the cabin, followed by a flight crew member coming down the aisle and inspecting outside the right side with a flashlight. When interviewed, the air traffic controller said that the crew had reported gear problems and had asked for a holding pattern. So investigators dug through the wreckage for the right landing gear, since that is where the crew member was looking. Flight engineer? Flight engineer. Yeah. And they found something interesting. Both main landing gear were torn from their structure, but they found evidence of corrosion on the threads of the attachment eye bolt, which was pulled free from the actuator piston. Well, why, why, why do we care? Why is that significant? I mean, it obviously sounds Horrifying. not great. <laughs> so that piston is responsible for lowering and raising the main landing gear in a controlled manner. If that eye bolt were to come loose while trying to lower the gear, the right main landing gear would just slam open. It just fell down hard into place. Violently. Does that sound familiar? Like a thud in the cabin? That might cause a thud. The whole airplane yawed because this with so much weight just came down hard that, to the and right. They then had asymmetric drag because the right, right. gear was down and but the, the left, left one, one was, was still not, descending. Yeah. 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 So that was mentioned. This also would have caused the warning that the flight crew experienced in the cockpit as the fall of the gear disabled the micro switch, which completes the circuit tied to the gear position indicators. So in all likelihood, like, the thing's probably down and probably locked. It slammed open. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. But they didn't know that. Because it broke the indicator. Right. So it's like, hey, the gear's not down. When we're like, no, it's solidly down. Don't you worry. It also didn't have, because in a lot of these old airplanes, they had an in-transit light, which means that the gear is literally moving at the moment. The way Mayday depicted it, it was green but flashing. I don't know if that's accurate. Yeah, I don't know about that. What I think they're talking about, because in most of these cases, they'd have an in-transit light, which tells them that the gear is in motion, and then it would be all green. It was all switched to all green when they're down. What they mentioned in the episode is that there was no in-transit light for the right main landing gear, and the green light was not staying solid or wasn't lit. So that told them that there could be something wrong with the right main landing gear. It also wasn't just in motion. Normally, when it doesn't trigger the switch saying it's locked down, it would just stay in the in motion or in transit. No, it was not moving. So it didn't have any of those things, which is why the flight crew were a little bit confused. But there's no way that a landing gear failure would have caused this crash. Uh Uh-uh. At worst, they would have had the gear collapse upon landing at PDX. This does not explain why they crashed in Gresham. And very rarely do gear collapses end with any major injury or death, by the way. It just doesn't. Because if you think about it, I mean, you might end up getting jostled a little bit, but when a gear collapses, you're on the runway. It just, it's going to be a little uncomfortable. It just goes boom. Right. It won't be comfy. Right. There are rare instances where it can cause death, the Sukhoi 100. We'll talk about that someday. Will we? I don't know. It's pretty ugly when the gear collapses. And that that is a rare instance where you have a hard landing. The gear collapses, but it punctures the fuel tank. Turns out that's not much of an issue if you don't have fuel. Anyway. (laughs) Right. You're not wrong. So pretty much in this case, it wasn't going to happen no matter what. So further notes from the interview with air traffic control revealed that the flight crew circled for an hour. 
Ouch. They actually calculated an hour and two minutes, roughly, from the time they noticed. The oh, what? if it's an hour. Yeah. Just, it's an hour and two friends. minutes. That's what they pointed out. And they only spoke to ATC when they were alerted by ATC of traffic. You may recall that crews carry an extra supply of fuel in the event of needing to hold like this or for diverting. Did they have enough fuel to circle for an hour? Yeah! The first clue of this is pretty simple. There was no fire at the wreckage site. Why? Because there was no fuel on board. <laughs> Thus solving the mystery of the engine flameout. So, what was going on in the cockpit that would have made them run out of fuel? They weren't paying attention. I wouldn't necessarily say that, but... So, let's discuss... The captain didn't, which well, I'm sure we'll get to this, but captain's word was still law at this point. Uh, just, can you chill? I, I can't see the I bottom said, of my notes. I said, <laughs> we, I said, we, I'm sure we will get into it, okay? Okay. We're gonna get into it. So, let's discuss the CVR, and I want to preface this analysis with the fact that this crash occurred in December of 1978, about a year and a half after the Tenerife incident. Mm-hmm. Proper procedure following a gear unsafe indication is to go to the irregular procedure section of the DC-8 flight manual, which says, quote, if the visual indicators indicate the gear is down, then a landing can be made at the captain's discretion, end quote. When the flight engineer went to observe the gear, they weren't literally looking for the gear. There are these little posts that pop up on the top of the wing if the gear is down and locked. These don't exist in modern aviation, <clears throat> and you might say why. I say why. There's actually quite a few reasons why most aircraft are now equipped with cameras, which is a pretty good indication on the gear is down when you can see it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But also the mechanisms that they used to make these rods work weren't necessarily the safest or most reliable thing in the world. Oh, great. And they don't make a whole lot of sense in modern aviation. With all the technology we have these days, it's just kind of unnecessary. Yeah, but it's like, I don't know. So these, I understand. these little posts are visible from the cabin. You just shine a flashlight and you see these little red posts sticking up out of the wing. And you're like, oh, okay, the gear's down and locked. So you can tell mm -hmm. without having to have a camera or mm -hmm. look out the window of the cockpit, which won't right. help you anyway. Right. Now, yes, this situation was concerning, but procedure is to follow the manual and then call dispatch and line maintenance. So from indication... To calling maintenance, that would be what? Couple minutes? Usually. Want to try uh, 28 minutes? Right. Come on. Yep. That was the time between the captain informing PDX approach about the issue and then 28 minutes until he contacted dispatch and line maintenance in San Francisco. Hmm. Are we having fun yet? No, it's decisively not fun. <laughs> it's infuriating. <laughs> Investigators interviewed the line maintenance staff who confirmed that they had done everything possible from the ground to assure the integrity of the landing gear and they had encouraged the captain to land. And yet the flight was in the air for another 30 minutes. Yippers. Why? No clue. Investigators nail it into you that they could have landed during this time. Just by the way. They really do. Just so you're aware, Linda. And it is at about this point that the CVR starts, since it only records for 30 minutes. Yeah, that was kind of an unfortunate thing, too, is that this was one of those instances where they figured out that really recording should be longer. Because, yeah, sure, in most instances, accidents happen in the last handful of minutes of flight. But not always. Within the last 30. But not always. There was a lot more they probably could have taken from having more 
data. So the captain called the first flight attendant, aka Purser, and instructed her to prepare the cabin for a possible abnormal landing. Though he neglected to give her a time frame in which that landing was to be made. Yeah. Which to me is the whole reason why the cabin crew didn't just immediately prepare for one. So the investigators concluded that she probably left with the impression that time efficiency was not necessarily as important as a thorough preparation. She was not made aware of the uh, prompt nature in which this was to occur. Because the captain didn't seem to have a prompt... Attitude about anything? No. The NTSB believes that any time a flight has to deviate from a flight plan, the flight crew should evaluate what effect that will have on fuel. Yeah. I mean, that's like the main thing. Uh, yeah. The flight plan called for fuel for a 2 hour and 26 minute flight, a 45 minute reserve, not 30, 45 minute reserve mm-hmm. at normal cruise, and a contingency margin of about 20 minutes. That's actually about an hour. Yep. It was at this point in the report that the investigators really harped on the flight crew's awareness of fuel, specifically whether or not they were monitoring their fuel quantities in terms of weight or in terms of time. Although the junior crew members made several comments about the fuel state, they did not do so in terms of time, nor did they emphasize the criticality, especially in the final 30 minutes. Right. They did not feel that they were in a position to override the captain with his experience, his 27,000 hours of experience. And thus we come to the age-old conversation of crew, crew. Resource, resource management, or CRM. The very reason I brought up Tenerife. That was another circumstance where a senior crew member was not questioned and led to a lot of people dying. However, that report had only come out a month before this accident and CRM hadn't quite caught on in the last uh, 30-ish days. Right. The other aspect of CRM that was vital in this accident was splitting of duties to solve a problem, spread out responsibility and workload. You may recall that UA-232 did a fantastic job of this, where the captain reached out for help and there was brainstorming in the cockpit. Mm Mm-hmm. You got an idea? You got an idea? Let's do that idea. Right. It wasn't just, I am the captain and this is what we're doing. Right. I am the captain. I don't care about the fuel. Or physics. <laughs> or like how fuel works. Or like the Math. fact that we will not have this amount of fuel or when we're in the time. air for 20 more minutes. Time was just irrelevant. Well, to and I don't know if you'll bring this up, but you also have a gear that's down. Which yep. means there's added drag, which means you're going to burn more fuel because you're dragging uh-huh. gear through air. Which the whole thing with that, too... Okay, there's a lot of things that come into calculation at that. They were at low altitude, which means you have to run the engines at a higher rate, at a higher throttle. The gear is down. The flaps are down, which all cause drag. Drag. All of these things are happening, which means that the fuel has to be run even more. Yeah. So it's pretty miraculous they even had an hour. Yeah. So for UA-173, the captain fixated on the landing gear problem. Does this sound like any other flights we've covered? I can think of a big one. How about Eastern Airlines Flight 401? That's the one. That was another instance where the flight crew fixated on the landing gear up until their demise. Right. Turns out that wasn't very far apart in time from this either. Granted, in their instance, altitude was what they were running out of. Right. Here, it's fuel. Yep. And by fixating, it allowed the fuel to continue being consumed. Right. Investigators did take time to ponder whether this was actually, in a weird way, intentional. If they had landed with an unsafe gear, having a low fuel quantity would lower the risk of fire. But ultimately, there was no evidence on the CVR that the captain had this as an intentional tactic. No, and I really doubt he did. It really just seemed like he was being a little complacent. The CVR revealed that it wasn't until the engines began flaming out that the captain suddenly became concerned and confused about the fuel. 
Though it still didn't take his attention entirely, because he came back to the landing gear thing like three more times. One factor of this may be that United had recently changed their fuel gauges to be a three-digit indicator that needed to be multiplied by 100 to reflect the actual fuel tank values. Conversely, the new totalizer gauge, I don't understand what the difference is between them. Someone mm-hmm. explain. Conversely, the new totalizer gauge also has a three-figure representation that needs to be multiplied by a thousand to get total fuel. See, you see why that might be confusing? Yeah. All of this is just generally fixed with us having like fully digital cockpits now where it literally just reads out full weight. And from what I understand, they had switched from digital yeah. to analog. I don't understand. When interviewed, the captain reported he watched his fuel drop from a thousand pounds to zero, but it's more likely he only watched it go from a hundred to zero. Since he was probably just confused by the new gauges. Yeah. But ultimately, that's not really a factor since it was so late in the flight anyway that a crash landing was already guaranteed. Yep. A thousand pounds of fuel, you ain't, you ain't making it anywhere. Nope, they weren't going to go very far. Not between point. four engines, you're not. Nope. <laughs> Quote, the safety board believes that this accident exemplifies a recurring problem, a breakdown in cockpit management coining the term before it really existed, and teamwork during a situation involving malfunctions of aircraft systems in flight. To combat this problem, responsibilities must be divided among members of the flight crew while a malfunction is being resolved. In this case, apparently no one, bolded, no one, was specifically delegated the responsibility of monitoring fuel state, end quote. Right. I, okay. Even though I would say that the flight engineer and the first officer were pretty acutely aware of what was actually happening with the fuel. I, I think they both were like, um, hello, sir. Excuse me. It's becoming very clear that we are running out of fuel. Especially when the flight engineer said 15 minutes is not enough. There's not enough fuel for that. It's so just not going to happen. No one made the calculation of what time they would run out of fuel and back calculate when they should turn back towards the airport. Bingo fuel. That would have been fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's literally a deadline. Uh-huh. You need to turn back to the airport at this time. Right. To make it. This is why bingo fuel is a thing. This is actually the fault of each crew member in turn. Yes. One, the captain and his management style pressured the crew to conform to his way of thinking, hindering interaction and adequate monitoring, and also hindering crew members from expressing an opinion. Obviously and infuriatingly so. Two, the first officer's responsibility is to monitor the captain and Mm -hmm. provide feedback. Again, although he spoke up several times, he did not do so in an assertive, direct tone and did not seem to have recognized the criticality of the situation, or if he did, he failed to convey it. Also, it should be noted that the first officer was the pilot flying this whole time. Yep. The flight engineer's responsibility, aside from, I don't know, aircraft systems, is to monitor the captain and first officer, particularly with regards to how their actions affect aircraft performance, such as time and fuel flow. Although he made comments about fuel, he did so in weight, not time. The crew as a whole did not perform well, but I'm not going to say that it's completely their fault either. That is fair. So much of knowing how to do these things comes from training. And if training isn't provided or in existence at the time, how can you expect them to do it? How can you expect them to have good crew resource management before they're trained on what that even is? Right. I wouldn't even say, I, I think the huge problem was the captain fixating so much that and like not even comprehending that they were going to run out of fuel. But the whole culture of aviation at the time really lent itself to this happening. Absolutely. It well, did. yeah, I mean, talk As, about Tenerife. We talk about several things that happened. Which it turns right out. Right before, right after Tenerife. You're like, if they had just had some 
crew resource management, like half Training. of these, half of the th- things that happened. One More than most, half. One of the most infuriating. What Right. One of the most infuriating things about this accident in particular is just not very long before this one. There was another United DC-8 that plowed into a mountain for pretty much the exact same circumstances. Circumstances? Circumstances. (laughs) So I'm now going to read some of my notes from the Mayday episode, just real quick. So it was at this point that the NTSB really started working with NASA. You might recall I actually mentioned that in episode one, that NASA Uh was one of the first developers of cockpit resource management, as they called it, which is now just crew resource management, with the goals of helping to improve crew coordination and collective decision making, specifically ensuring that the captain listens better to their flight crew right? and that other flight deck members need to be more assertive. Yep. It's the whole thing of like you have humans, more than one human in a cockpit because humans make mistakes. Well, and it becomes a much more collaborative environment than it becomes a hierarchy environment. Well, it's like a a checks and balances, right? So Uh even though you have three people of various flight hours and flight times. And experience. They're all bringing experience to the table. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right? Because you have these two pilots that know how to fly the airplane, and then this flight engineer that understands how to read the panel. Know the systems. Right. And so, if you work together as a team, it's a hundred percent more effective than having someone who is quote unquote in charge and having two people complacent and following the rules because that's what you were supposed to do back then. Right. Before I continue on my little tirade, let's go through findings, cause, and the recommendation. Yes. Because that's then where I'm going to branch off of. Yes, fair enough. Let's do some findings. I read most of these, because there are 15, but not all. They found that except for the failure of the piston rod on the right main landing gear, retract cylinder assembly. With the resulting damage to the landing gear position indicating system switch, there was no evidence of a failure or malfunction of the aircraft structure, power plants, flight controls, or systems. So we already knew the landing gear had a problem and that was it. They found that the aircraft departed Denver with the required fuel aboard for two hours, 26 minutes for the en route flight and with the required FAR or Federal Aviation Regulation and company contingency fuel aboard for of about one hour, which turns out is about exactly how long it lasted. They found that the landing delay covered a period of about one hour and two minutes. They found that all of the aircraft's engines flamed out because of fuel exhaustion. About 6.15 p.m., which is one hour and three minutes after it entered into hold, and three hours and 27 minutes after it departed Denver. Turns out that was one hour and one minute over their planned route time. So it's a pretty good calculation. They found that fuel exhaustion was predictable. The crew failed to equate the fuel remaining with time and distance from the airport. They found that no pertinent malfunctions were found during examination of the fuel quantity measuring system. Literally, it was telling them exactly how much it had, and they just chose Not to, to ignore believe it. it. Yeah, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. They found that a new digital fuel quantity indicating system was installed on this aircraft on May 12th of 1978. This was in accordance with a DC-8 United Airlines fleet-wide retrofit program. So they all had this. They found that evidence indicates that the fuel quantity indicating system accurately indicated fuel quantity to the crew. They knew. They found that the fuel gauges were readily visible to the captain and the second officer. So the captain and the flight engineer both knew what was happening. They found that the captain failed to make decisive, timely decisions. They found that the captain failed to relate time, distance from the airport, and the aircraft's fuel state as his attention was directed completely 
toward the diagnosis of the gear problem in preparation of the passengers for an emergency landing. The gear problem had a disorganized effect on the captain's performance. Which, by the way, when they did the landing, the forced landing into an area, the, the cabin was prepared for emergency landing, and it is part of the survival aspects, actually, because they did brace. All the passengers did brace, and they did actually have the time to tell them, like... We're well, going to be doing an emergency landing. Unless you listen to how Mayday depicted it. And I don't right. know if it was like manipulated to sound this way. Sure. Or if passengers really felt this way when they landed. But they depicted it as the passengers thought they were landing at the airport. Right. And, and that they probably they were, did. And that they were just suddenly on the ground at this like random house. Right. And that's probably actually what happened because... They all thought they were going to be landing. They were getting very low, but suddenly the engines weren't working and the power went out and it was pretty evident. And the cabin crew started telling them to brace. So they thought they were going to be landing at an airport. It wasn't going to be very good. And then they weren't at an airport. And the last finding. We found that neither the first officer nor the flight engineer conveyed any concern about fuel exhaustion to the captain until the accident was inevitable. I don't know that that's necessarily true because the flight engineer really did say like, not enough, 15 minutes, we don't have enough fuel for that. And that is, to me, that's raising concern, but it wasn't enough. I mean, yeah, I agree. It's not enough concern. Like they weren't saying, no, we have to land now. We don't have a choice. Like, Captain, we are out of fuel. <laughs> and that didn't happen. We done, son. Right. So that's it for the findings. The National Transportation Safety Board determined that the probable cause of the accident was the failure of the captain to properly monitor the aircraft's fuel state and to properly respond to the low fuel state and the crew members' advisories regarding fuel state. This resulted in fuel exhaustion to all engines. His inattention resulted from preoccupation with a landing gear malfunction and preparations for a possible landing emergency. Contributing to the accident was the failure of the other two flight crew members either to fully comprehend the criticality of the fuel state or to successfully communicate their concern to the captain. Yep. Pretty well sums that up. Any guesses on what the recommendation is? Yep. Crew, resource, management. How did you guess? <laughs> so there's actually four recommendations, but I'm not doing the other three because they were all related to the engineering of the DC-8. And it was like, no, we don't need to talk about this. It's not the problem. It's not pertinent information anymore. No. Because <laughs> not really anybody flies DC-8s. I think they might be flown right. for cargo, but... Right. I mean, the other recommendations related to more, like, how to read the fuel gauges, stressing the training on... Yeah, there's blah, like... Blah, 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 There's like not... They, that doesn't have... It's like all computerized now. None of that matters. Like, the aircraft itself is like, this is how much we have. Well, like, let's just get around the fact everybody in the cockpit still kind of knew how much fuel was on board and just chose to ignore Like, it. that wasn't the issue. <laughs> that, right. That really wasn't the issue. It was just kind of more... We just ignored it. So, the actual recommendation I'm going to read is, they recommended issuing an operations bulletin to all air carrier operations inspectors, directing them to urge their assigned operators to ensure that their flight crews are indoctrinated in principles of flight deck resource management, with particular emphasis on the merits of participative management for captains and assertiveness training for other cockpit crew members. That is a very roundabout way of bringing to light crew resource management. And as a result of this, it was a big change to the industry. And arguably this was kind of the final straw. So we've talked about crew resource management for so long. And that's why this one's really so important is because yeah, there was some really defining accidents that really make crew resource management obviously needed, but this accident, because it was super avoidable. It was so avoidable. <laughs> if they had just landed like 20 minutes earlier. Right. That's why this was like literally the straw of the, 
broke the camel's back. It just, this was the end of it. So the FAA accepted this recommendation, as you might imagine, and United Airlines was one of the first to adopt CRM training. In the world. Which is pretty incredible. Go United. Mm-hmm. So the Mayday episode then went in to the United Training Facility. Miranda, do you know where the United Training Facility it's is? It's here. It is. It's literally like at Stapleton, minutes, 15 still, minutes away from where I work. Currently. Yeah, it's still literally at the Stapleton facility. Wait, it's always to be been the there. Stapleton Airport, but now is no longer the Stapleton Airport. Right. However, it does have a very fantastic brewery in the control tower. So should you ever visit Denver? True. Which you guys went without me and then you didn't tell me and then I saw it on Facebook and I was really sad. Sorry. I'm sorry. You were busy that day. But you could have told me I could have taken a break. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, it's done. It's over. It's f- whatever. <laughs> so they interviewed the flight training director there and actually demonstrated what CRM training looks like. And right. It's in a simulator. You have all of these alarms going off. And the two flight crew members are adamantly working together to both fly the aircraft right. and Shocker. figure out the problem. Shocker. What do you know? And get the airplane on the ground quickly. It's problem solving with the heaviest of consequences if you mess it up right so it's stressful right but it's crucial to be trained on it and a lot of flight crew training not even just united happens at the united training center oh yeah for crews around the world it is a ginormous simulation center that is how nick has gotten to fly a simulator for 757 and a triple seven and a 787 nope 76 what an a320 oh whatever I have an hour on the A320 and the 757 and two on the 777. Look at this guy. But it's an absolutely huge facility surrounded by hotels because so many airlines, not just United, send their crews to be trained at the United Mm -hmm. Training Center. Yep. It's a phenomenal facility, too. I mean, what they have set up there is spectacular. It's huge and it's capable of doing so much. It's also really close to a good brewery. Anyway. It is. It is. So there you go. That was... United Airlines Flight 173. Right. And the psychology, just to me, the psychology behind how a crew can just... Screw up. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. I hate that it makes sense. But... And I hate the circumstances leading up to it. It was a lot of... It needed to happen, ultimately. So uh, there's a few things that I think happen in the captain's mind, and these are some of the things that I just, I, I thought we should discuss for a moment. The captain, in particular... It was very evident that he was nervous of making this landing because he kept delaying and delaying and delaying and going through every single possibility there was. Even after he started losing engines, he was still focused on reset that circuit breaker again. Maybe we'll get the light back. Oh, what about the landing your warning horn? No, you're screwed. I'm sorry, but you're focused on a situation that just doesn't matter. (laughs) You're not focused on the right situation. And he's focused on that initial situation because he was so nervous of having to make a landing and making sure that it was survivable with a landing gear that actually in reality probably would have been just fine once they were on the ground, wouldn't have collapsed. It just, it took so much of his attention that he just forgot to pay attention to to the much deadlier situation. He had tunnel vision. And yes, the crew resource management is what affected the other crew members into not bringing this to his attention much much bigger way but it is still this interesting psychology that happens of your own confirmation bias where you just are so convinced that this is the bigger problem and i need to solve this so that i can make a good landing when in reality you have now put yourself in a much more dangerous situation having to make an actual deadly landing 
that is just scary. But I don't think those 10 people died in vain. I think No, absolutely not. This, I think this is arguably one of the most important accidents in history. <laughs> I think it's fortunate that only 10 people died. Absolutely it is. And it was 10 people dying that broke the camel's back and caused CRM to be the standard. Exactly. It just ticks me off that those 10 people didn't have to die. I know. Correct. Which, and we, I mean, we went through an entire episode of, of reasons why, right? right? Like, I don't have to keep reiterating yeah. it, but right. it's, that it's just, yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like, if you just would have paid attention a little bit harder, yep, you would have just seen that it was just, just make the damn landing. Like it, exactly. it's gonna happen. And it did. Right. Not where you wanted it to because you right. procrastinated way too long. Right. Because you were so nervous of making a landing at the airport. Right. Like, just do it. <laughs> I yep. do want to add a couple of other details from the Wikipedia page real quick. Held responsible for the accident, Captain McBroom lost his pilot's license and retired from United Airlines shortly afterwards. Yes. I he couldn't fly anymore. He spent his remaining years battling health problems related to injuries sustained in the crash, as well as lung and prostate cancers. Oof. Family members and passengers who spoke to McBroom at a 1998 reunion of crash survivors reported that he was a broken man plagued by guilt over his role in the accident. He died on October 9th, 2004 at the age of 77. One of the passengers, an eight-year-old in 1978, mm -hmm. was awarded $900,000 in damages from the airline by a Portland jury in 1984. She was injured and both of her parents were killed. Damn. And it's true. When they, they brought it up in the episode about him going to this reunion in how he really was broken in a lot of the, but he was also very supportive of the survivors. He's like anything you need. Absolutely. He was. And a lot of the survivors and a lot of the passengers actually, while they understand that, yes, he was at fault. He still, they still didn't see him as a bad person in any way. And many course. came to forgive him. The decision was bad. But, but he also wasn't trained. Right. And the reality was the system kind of failed him in not giving him the training he needed to prevent. And the this. other crew members. The and the other crew needed. members, too. Absolutely. I mean, if they would have spoken up a little bit sooner, too, it would have been like the if we had had proper CRM at that point, the first officer at any point would have said, no, we're landing. Right. Like we're there's no reason for us to keep circling. We're running out of fuel. We're going to land. Plus, he right. was flying the aircraft. Right. Well, yeah, but I mean, yeah. that wasn't a possibility at the time. Like, it was just unheard of. Right. And I, it wouldn't surprise me that he would feel guilty, but it doesn't surprise me that the people were like, listen, dude, like, yeah, it sucked, but like, you were doing your best, you know? When mm -hmm. you're a person in a leadership role trying to make a decision like that without any help. Right. Or without any perceived help. Right. And it, it, it was a lot. And it's... It's heavy, and it's still, I mean, we laugh about certain things throughout this episode, and we, we say things, but the reality is, yeah, no, this wasn't easy or a good thing on him, obviously, and it was it was really rough. So, it's you have to take everything with a grain of salt, but the reality is, if this accident hadn't kick-started CRM right away... Imagine how many other lives would have been Right, lost. what would have been worse? What would have been, what else would have happened, you know? And unfortunately, there was a lot of other incidents before this that really should have been the immediate kickstart to crew resource management, but weren't. And yes, it should have happened earlier. It could have prevented this, but it did. Ultimately thankfully, happen. thankfully out of this accident, it was an immediate change to well, the whole industry. With the combination of Tenerife. the report from Tenerife coming out, not, yes. not too long 
like before this happened. Right. It's like it was yeah. like a month and ten days or something. Yeah. It's clearly there there needs to be something in place so that the these captain I mean, to be fair, they're two completely different situations because we right. talk about Tenerife being toxic. Yes. leadership right? right and then we talk about this where it's not particularly toxic leadership but it's indecisive but it's someone who because he thought he was making the right choice but he didn't he was like double triple quadruple checking to right. make sure it was safe but you know then you get tunnel vision and then you're not checking on stuff and yep also it just dawned on me i remember why this was so far back in our list why it's an anniversary episode yeah it is Correct. This episode comes out December 27th, and it happened December 28th. Yep. So, 44 years ago is when this happened. Yep. So. All right. Well, there you go. Sorry for the ranting and raving. There's a big roundabout, very important episode. This is one of those milestone CRM episodes. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Again, check out all the stuffs, the socials, Patreons. The merch. Merch. (laughs) The everything. The everything. Thank you for supporting us again. Like we posted a few, we posted our Spotify, I posted our Spotify rap. Yes. A few weeks ago and it's probably even changed Our since listenership then. has skyrocketed. And that's In really. In a relative sense, absolutely. Because yeah. you guys listen. I mean, because people are like, oh, well, people who listen to this podcast also listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we have a high rating on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts, so. Thank you. When you like the show, it helps a lot. So share, give us a rating, give us a review. Right. All of it helps and we appreciate it. Thank you very much. We hope you guys had a great holiday. Have a happy new year since, you know, 2023 is just right around the corner. Don't say that. Dun, dun, dun. It's only a couple days after this episode comes out. Yep. Happy holidays. <laughs> happy holidays. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all in the new year. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.